dates August 1995. Futanga Babane Sisoko walks into a bank in Dubai to get a car loan. He has a meeting with Mohamed Ayoub, one of the bank managers there. Sisoko was a friendly customer. You know, the kind of guy who has long conversations with strangers because of his charm and good nature. And that's what happens here. It might seem a bit crazy, but after only one meeting, Sisoko invites Ayub to dinner. When he arrives at the house, Ayub is confronted by a man sort of storming out of a darkened room, clutching his head. The man sees Ayub and starts shouting. Be careful, don't anger the jinns. Do as they say. In English, we might use the word genie. But jinn are ancient entities in Islam. They deserve respect. They are very intelligent. And if you go into a deal with a jinn, you have to be careful because they are smarter than you are. So this guy is shouting and he just runs out of the house. Naturally, Ayub is terrified. But Sisoko reassures his new friend that there's nothing to worry about. And explains to him that they're going to place money in this magic room where the jinns live. They place a bag of money in the room. There's smoke, there's lights, there's haunting voices, flashbang. What in the hell is going on? There's all this commotion. Once it dies down, Muhammad Ayyub walks into the room cautiously to see what's happened to the money. But what he witnesses leaves him in complete awe. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, the show where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? In this episode, we're looking at a bizarre bank heist and the disappearance of the man who orchestrated it. During the pandemic, scammers came out in force. You'd be sitting at your desk, checking emails, and out of the blue, you get one that says, I'm trapped in a foreign country and need you to transfer me $10,000. Or how about this one? You've won this life-changing amount of money. All you need to do is enter your details here. It happens to be your most personal details. But these attempts were easy to see through. We just laugh and say, ah, I'd never fall for that. Or... How could you believe in such an obvious lie? But when a scammer caters a scam to intimate personal details about you, you know, like your religion or your beliefs, it's a lot easier to fall for it. I mean, let's face it, we all love to be agreed with. And when someone subscribes to the same faith as you or your ideals, it feels like they're automatically on your side. And that's what this story is about. A story about religious affinity but also cultural differences and misplaced trust. It's the year 2000, a day like any other for investigative journalist and documentary filmmaker Brigitte Sheffer. I was in Dubai and working for a regional newspaper as an oil and gas reporter. So Brigitte spent most of her time on shipyards working on stories about oil. That was her beat. But one day, an anecdote from a friend got her started on an investigation that she would obsess over for years. I went to have lunch with a friend 
uh, a lawyer who was also working very closely with the prosecution office. So they're just sitting, catching up and, you know, getting some grub when he tells Brigitte about a particular case that's on his mind. He reveals that a lot of money had gone missing from a bank in Dubai called Dubai Islamic Bank. And it took the bank a long time to discover what had been going on. The whole thing has been kept very hush-hush for several years. But finally, in 2000, the bank starts pursuing a suspect through the courts. It was just a jaw-dropping moment. I hadn't realized that this case was going on. To be fair, most people in Dubai didn't know much about the case because the media weren't giving the story much attention. But her friend's story sparks a memory for Brigitte, a memory from a few years back about that very same bank. I had noticed some problems at the bank where there were extraordinarily long queues going around the building. There were some rumors on the street that had caused people to flock to Dubai Islamic Bank to empty their accounts. I didn't really read too much into it. That sort of thing happened every so often. But now Brigitte is putting two and two together. She realizes that those cues or lines must have been related to the money that went missing at the bank. So Brigitte rushes home to do some digging. I realized quite early on that I would never be able to write a story about it because of the way the press censorship is in the in United Arab Emirates. You see, Dubai is the sort of place where journalists, how shall I put this, they got to be a bit careful about what they write and what they start digging around in. It's really not good to embarrass anyone or anything too important. So Brigitte, she just decides to research for her own curiosity. I just really had to learn Arabic mainly also so that I could speak to people about this subject and they would give me their opinions. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Uh, can we just pause here for a minute and give some credit? This woman learned Arabic for a story. I mean, that's dedication. The story was going pretty slow for her. There's hardly any information out there on the case or the people involved in it. After years of digging around, I tried the legal avenues and I explored where, apart from Dubai, this case would have stood trial. And that's how I managed to get a hold of trial papers from other jurisdictions like France and Switzerland. There are trial papers from court cases all over the world because Dubai Islamic Bank was pursuing their suspect in multiple countries. With all of these legal documents, Brigitte's able to piece the story together bit by bit. She figures out the case started because of a man named Muhammad Ayyub, the managing director of Dubai Islamic Bank. Remember, that's the guy from the beginning of this episode. Let's take it back a few years to 1996. Muhammad Ayyub is sitting at his desk in the bank. He is stressed out, and his guilt is eating him alive. He's been keeping a secret for the past two years. Ayub began to really feel the heat. He can't take the pressure. So, he confides in a colleague. He had a meeting with one of his superiors in a car park. It's one of those meetings you see in the movies when something has gone so badly wrong that they got to leave the office to discuss it where no one can overhear them. You see, Ayub is nervous because there's money missing from the bank and auditors are in the offices sniffing around. And unable to actually even confess the true extent of the money that had gone missing, he wrote it down on a piece of paper. 
Ayub scribbles a number down on the scrap of paper, and with, I can only imagine, is a shaky hand, he passes it to his colleague. 890 million dirhams, which, uh, you know, is equivalent to about $250 million. $250 million U.S. dollars was missing from the bank. Ayub has no choice. He confesses to his colleague that for about two years, he's been wiring money on behalf of this customer slash friend, a man named Futanga Babani Sisoko. We had a name, but we didn't really know much about him. The investigators had a list of potential nationalities that Sisoko might have. And using that, Brigitte begins to build an image of this mysterious bank customer. He came from very humble, very poor origins. He was literally born in a mud hut in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere, pretty much. And he can't read or write, never really had a school education. But he's incredibly good at reading people, and he has a thing for numbers. They knew he spoke a local native dialect. He didn't speak English, but he spoke a bit of French. And Brigitte, being the polyglot that she is, speaks French fluently. He was a a great, charming playboy of a guy, and he certainly had a taste for women. He also had a real taste for living the high life. A high life that the bank suspects has been funded by their money. He loved watches, he loved cars, he loved gambling. He loved all these sort of rather excessive lifestyle cliches that we all know about. The thing about spending all that money is that there's usually a trail. So the bank hired people all over the world to follow it. And that's how Alan Fine got involved in the case in 1998. I'm a, currently a circuit court judge in Miami-Dade County, Florida. And before that, for almost 30 years, I was a practicing attorney. Alan was hired to find out who had received payments of the stolen money. We were told that there was a pattern of transfers out of the bank and the writing off of credit card charges and some withdrawals from accounts at the bank. Alan was tasked with finding out how managing director of Dubai Islamic Bank Mohammed Ayub became involved in the scheme. I recognized it or believed right at the beginning that it was a con. The question all the time was, was Ayub in on this at the beginning or later? By virtue of his position, Ayub was able to prevent the detection of the fraud or quell suspicions or concerns that may have arisen. That makes sense. He's basically the head honcho at the bank, so he could easily hide the gaping hole in the accounts. The question is, though, did Ayub take some of the bank's money for himself? And to answer that, an extensive forensic investigation was carried out. We were unable to find any direct benefit to Mr. Ayub. They did manage to track $200,000 that had been transferred to a woman at Mr. Ayub's behest, but that's it. That is the only thing that I can remember that we ever found that he benefited directly or indirectly. So, Ayub, you're going to do all of this misinformation and mishandling of money at the risk of losing your job and your life, but not take any money for yourself? When Alan finally heard Ayub's defense, he couldn't believe it. It's a completely crazy story over an enormous amount of money. That's coming up after the break. 
Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the year 2000. Ayub gets arrested for wiring 250 million U.S. dollars out of Dubai Islamic Bank. He goes to court and tries to convince them that he wasn't trying to steal the money from the bank. In his defense, he tells this crazy-ass story. It's 1995. It's like any other day for Ayub. He's working at the bank when suddenly this guy, Sisoko, walks in. According to him... He was a customer asking for a loan, and that's where they met. They got along so well that Sisoko invited Ayub to his house for dinner. And that's when Sisoko revealed something that was a bit shocking to Ayub. She told him that he was basically a sorcerer and that he had magic powers. What the hell? Can you imagine? Bro, we just met. I came over here for some grub. And you talking some crazy shit about how you're a sorcerer and you got some magical powers? Sisoko knew it sounded weird, and he didn't expect Ayub to believe him without any proof. He told Ayub to come back again, but this time he should bring some cash in a bag. As if that makes it sound any better. And that they're going to place this money in this magic room where the jinns live. Jinn are ancient spirits mentioned in the Quran and they're part of Ayub's faith. According to Ayub, Sisoko told him that he could double the money in the bag. So Ayub put the money in the middle of the room and waited outside. Ayub heard noises and saw flashes of light from within the room. And then, silence. Muhammad Ayub is handed back double the cash he came with. Okay, so I gotta be honest. Maybe my skepticism would have been muted a bit if I saw my money double. And if that wasn't enough, Ayub says he even gets some extra gifts from Sisoko. This potion and a black orb that Sisoko brought back from Mali. He instructed Muhammad to put this black orb in the center of his house. And he told him, when you do that, then I can always see you and I can always watch over you. He also instructed him to put this paste on his body and to leave it to dry and that this potion had magic powers and that it would bind Ayub to Sissoko. Ayub told the court that after he applied the binding potion, whenever Sissoko rang him, he would just fall into a trance and do whatever Sissoko asked. Meanwhile, Sissoko is orchestrating everything from abroad. 
Sissoko left Dubai and moved to the US for a bit. And so he would ring Ayub up and ask him for cash and he would wire it to him. The money transfers were in the millions every month. I think the smallest amount was perhaps two million and one of the larger amounts was for like 15 million. So in November of 1995, just weeks after doubling Ayub's money, Sissoko walks into Citibank in New York where he met a teller named Mona Searles. But she didn't just help him open an account. She became his wife. Damn, this dude is smooth. Which made his life a lot easier when it came to the money transfers. According to a court case brought by Dubai Islamic Bank, Sissoko gave her more than a half a million dollars. The court was told that another woman at the bank, and apparently Mona, helped Sissoko transfer millions of dollars from Dubai Islamic Bank into his Citibank account. I think there were about 180 transfers. Just to be clear here, over that two-year period, Sissoko never doubled the money. Not once. But Ayub kept wiring it to him, and Sissoko kept taking it. But no money was ever doubled. Now, Dubai Islamic Bank, they want their money back. They try to pursue the case in multiple different countries. The courts find Sissoko guilty. A court in Dubai even sentences him to three years for fraud and practicing magic. But Sissoko is nowhere to be found. So they made his world a lot smaller, if you know what I mean. It's now the early 2000s, and Interpol has issued a warrant for Sissoko's arrest. But he's long gone, which only makes this case more tantalizing for Brigitte. There was a really very cunning, very strategic, very smart mind at work. But I had no idea who this person was, and that's why I had to work out where he was, what he was doing, and how I could find him. She goes back to square one, trying to figure out what happened to Sissoko since he met Ayub in 1995 and where he's gone. The more I got to know about him, through people who either knew him personally or had worked with him or had been involved with him. My picture of him obviously changed. It became more human in that sense. I observed aspects of his characters that were not particularly favorable. He's very self-centered. He has quite a violent streak as well. People spoke of his legendary temper. Brigitte finds records that show Sissoko had started an airline company in Senegal. Really? Yeah, I'm a sorcerer full-time, but, you know, I also dabble a bit in aviation, owning my own airline and such. This dude is crazy. It serviced most of West Africa and other flights to, I think, Saudi Arabia. In July of 1996, before anyone found out about the bank heist, Sissoko sent his men to buy two decommissioned Vietnamese helicopters. He said he wanted to convert them into an ambulance service. But because they are military decommissioned helicopters, they need a special customs permit to be exported. And permits take time. But as you can imagine, Sissoko doesn't want to wait. Sissoko is sort of telling them, hurry up, hurry up. Sissoko offers a little encouragement to move things along, if you know what I mean. These two men that worked for Sissoko tried to bribe the customs officer. They offer a $30,000 bribe, which is a federal offense in the U.S. So Interpol arrests Sissoko in Geneva, where he's trying to open another bank account. 
and they put him in jail. But you know this dude, Sisoko, he's slick. He's living a pretty sweet life in there. He flies in meals every night from Paris for himself and the prison wardens. Until eventually, he's extradited back to the U.S. to stand trial in Miami. When the trial took place, it was incredible the amount of people who came out to support him. We're talking ambassadors from most of Africa, but even like U.S. Congress people. Sisoko had rubbed shoulders with the rich and powerful. He'd even been invited to dinner with Clinton because they had him pegged as a potential donor. Now some of these powerful people were making a lot of noise in Sisoko's defense. But eventually, he has to stand trial, so Sisoko goes to court. One of the arguments put forward by the prosecution was that it was unusual that you would buy two Bell helicopters for an ambulance service. So there was that argument that he was basically buying this so that he could maybe repurpose them for military uses. We don't know what his intentions were for sure, but Sisoko maintains they were just for ambulance use. Nevertheless, in March of 1997, he's sentenced to 43 days in prison and then to serve time under house arrest. While Sisoko is in minimum security prison, he's visited weekly. An attorney who spoke French had been hired by one of the firms representing him to visit with him on a regular basis. When the attorney comes to see Sisoko, he hands her a piece of paper filled with instructions, which she, in good faith, passes on. Those instructions were telefaxed from the law firm that had employed her. The pieces of paper detail how he wants his money to be transferred while he's in prison. He would give her written instructions on transferring funds from Dubai Islamic Bank to various places. She would take them to work and fax them to the bank where they would execute the transfers. Millions and millions of dollars. Just to make this clear, this is happening in 1997. Sisoko was in prison because his men tried to pay a bribe to customs officials to export his helicopters. Nobody's noticed that the bank's money has gone missing yet. And even though Sisoko is in prison, he's still getting Ayub to wire money out of the Dubai Islamic Bank. Years later, when Brigitte started investigating Sisoko, she finds out about the helicopters and Sisoko getting thrown in jail for bribery. But she can't figure out what happened to him after that. I ran out of any leads. And for years, there was nothing. Over the next few years, Brigitte travels the world for her other story. But Sisoko is always in the back of her mind. There was a real fascination about how how he would have conceived a trick like this, what it would have taken to pull it off. And then, in a moment of sheer luck, when Brigitte is working on a story in Libya, She finds something when she's going through the country's investment portfolios. I discovered his name on a hotel sale bill in one of the investment portfolios. It's his name and a hotel address. It's at this point that everything changes. The search is back on. That's coming up after the break. So Brigitte is in Libya working on a story when she sees Sisoko's name on a document. She's in shock. Years have gone by since she last had a lead. And now, here she is by pure luck. 
It was just his name with very little else to go on. But it was a name that I recognized, a name I can work with. Brigitte was not going to let this lead slip away from her. I mean, she learned Arabic for this. As in for a penny, in for a pound, I'd spent so much of my life tracking this man and getting into his head. The document has Sisoko's name on it, but it also has a hotel address listed. It's a hotel in Mali. Mali is a country in West Africa, and it's one of the largest countries on the continent. This could be another man with the same name, but she's been working on this for a long time, so it's worth a shot. In 2014, she packs her bags for Mali. I was told quite clearly by, by several people not to go, that it would be too dangerous for me. Against strong advice from all of those people, she flies to Mali's capital anyway to track down the man who's eluded her for the past 14 years. Finally, Brigitte gets another lead. She meets a few acquaintances of Sisoko, his seamstress, his driver, and his goldsmith. And they give her the final puzzle piece, a description of Sisoko's house, which she's told is near Mali's border with Guinea and Senegal. So Brigitte starts driving around the area looking for this house. And then she sees it. This house is easy to find in the village. It's the biggest. But the risk is high. The location that I was going to was very remote. The only road into this place is controlled by his armed men with a gate. So once you're in, you're in. And the only way out is if they let you out. There is no escape. And on top of that, there's no phone connection. So if things go south, Brigitte, she can't call for help. I really had a long think about everything. The questions I was going to ask, how I was going to ask them. And I was a bit worried because several sort of quite well-known men in Mali warned me about his quite aggressive manner with women. So the next day, Brigitte and her small team drive to Sisoko's house and park outside. And then basically I knocked at the door. With all that she's heard about this man and all the warnings she's been given about how dangerous this is, here she is. Brigitte has no idea what lies behind this door. So she stands there and she waits. Finally, someone comes to answer. I was let in and I asked to see Mr. Sisoko. Suddenly, there he is. The man Brigitte has been chasing for over a decade. Futanga Babani Sisoko, now 70 years old and surrounded by armed guards. We sat down on a veranda and had a cup of tea. Now, this isn't the interview. This is just a nice chat over a cup of tea. Brigitte has got one opportunity, one shot at asking Sisoko if he'd be willing to speak to her on camera. And I asked him if I could interview him. She doesn't tell him what the interview is about. She just waits for a response. Sisoko goes quiet. These seconds just felt like forever, and I was trying to keep the sort of, like, poker face going. There are all sorts of things going through Brigitte's mind. She has no idea if this thing is about to go very wrong. And in the end, he turned around and said, OK, but I want to get changed into a nicer suit. I mean... A guy like Sisoko can't do an on-camera interview without getting spruced up. So I set the camera up. I was quite nervous. 
And then Sissoko came out and I had to put a mic on him. And he insisted that I sit really quite close to him on the sofa. Brigitte knows that there are no do-overs of this interview. She has to get everything right. I had to run back and forwards between the camera and me, making sure that we were all in shot and that the sound was okay, and then run back and sit down and compose myself. Doing the interview itself was actually quite nerve-wracking because I also had to film it whilst I was doing the interview in French. You see, Sissoko didn't speak English, but he could speak a bit of French. So Brigitte had to conduct the entire interview in another language. Surrounded by armed men sitting in a bank robber's house who's on the run with a man who has a sort of reputation for being occasionally very violent with women. It's not the ideal interview situation, but a dude like Sissoko, I'd imagine he likes to talk about himself. So he's happy to tell stories about his birth and his life. I basically asked him, you know, pretty much from when he was born to right up to the present. Brigitte, she's a smart journalist. She's careful not to jump into the high story right away. She needs to keep Sissoko talking so she can ease into the real questions she really wants to ask. His mood did change significantly when I asked him about the bank robbery. Because at that point then, I think he realized why I was really there. And he got very, very angry. And I did get a little bit scared. He quickly figured out what she was trying to do. But Brigitte manages to rein the interview back in and stay on track. They go back and forth about the details. Sissoko denies any involvement in the heist. This is a clip from the interview Brigitte did with Sissoko for BBC Arabic. And he says he doesn't have any magic powers. He says, Madam, if a person had that kind of power, why would he work? If you have that kind of power, you can stay where you are and rob all the banks of the world. Basically, Sissoko is saying, why would I have worked all these years as a businessman if I could have just robbed banks from my kitchen table? I mean, at 70 years old, he's still smooth with the defense. But for Brigitte, there was never any doubt that Sissoko was involved in the heist. It was just a question to see how he was going to react when confronted with it like this, which must have been a bit of a shock to him sitting in his living room drinking tea. Sissoko had spent most of his money by the time Brigitte came to see him. He was no longer living the ridiculously lavish life that he once had. I think a lot of his friends actually were quietly hoping that he'd somehow get it back together and go out and pull off another big heist. He died earlier this year. He died at the beginning of this year. So no, he will never rise again. May he rest in peace. What's interesting is how this story was received across the world when Brigitte turned the story into a documentary. A lot of people were really mocking. Think about it. Essentially, this is a story about a guy using spells and magic to con money out of a bank manager. But when Brigitte pitched it to journalists who actually knew the Middle East, they got it. The Arabic-speaking commissioners were not phased by it and said, yes, this is part of our culture. The Arabic-speaking commissioners at the BBC accepted the supernatural aspect of the heist. Whereas I think the English commissioners struggled a lot more with that because they sort of asked me outright, do you believe in magic? Does anyone believe in magic? But nobody believes in magic. We're going to make these people look really silly. On the face of it, this might look ridiculous from a Western perspective. 
But we believe in a whole lot of ridiculous things. I mean, angels and devils, miracles, ghosts, the evil eye. At this moment right now, some of you listening are like, those things aren't ridiculous at all. And that's the point I'm making. All of these things can be used against us to make us bend to the will of another person, which is what happened to Ayub. Even after he was arrested, there were rumors that people tried to rid him of his bindings to Sissoko. It's very possible that he was exorcised in prison. If he had said that he was bewitched, that he was under the spell of somebody, then the next course of action in a religious way would be to expel that jinn that is holding him or break that spell that has been cast over him. The Bible says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Even though Ayub doesn't subscribe to Christianity, the ideas of faith are similar and serve as a substitute for evidence. When one believes so strongly in their faith and someone comes along and ingratiates themselves through that shared belief, then it would stand to be that reason, skepticism, and all of the things that would have protected Ayub were suspended. Because in this case, faith was much stronger than reason. Faith isn't always bad, it's brought many people through many difficult times. But there's a fine line between faith and reason. And when faith supersedes reason, it usually gets us into trouble. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like cheap, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat, shipping salmonella how the head of a peanut processing company ended up causing one of the largest food poisoning outbreaks in American history. I recall when we left for the hearing, we were at the airport and one of the monitors had a news station on and they showed the FBI raiding the offices of peanut pork. And that was the first inkling or notion I had that something was wrong besides negligence with that company. So it wasn't until the next day during the hearing where I found out just how wrong it was. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Mira Kumar. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Ennis Bowen. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola.